And so having that sort of uh, big picture vision for the industry and taking off the blinders of what's happening for me today. What am, what's my business going to look like, uh, you know, five years from now and 10 years from now? I think the industry, one of the things I appreciate about the industry is just, just some really great thinkers in that space. Swinet. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like EveryPig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Justall, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Alonco's Prevacent, a new perspective. Visit prevacentpers.us to learn more. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Welcome to Swining Podcast. My name is Marcel Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is Adiseo, a worldwide leader in animal nutrition. Our company offers specialized technical support for nutritionists, veterinarians, and other animal production professionals. Our portfolio of programs and services include a wide array of high-performing feed solutions such as essential nutrients, palatability, feed preservation, mycotoxin management, and health and nutrition. To learn more about our company, visit us at www.adiseo.com. Hello, everyone. Today, we have Dr. Chris Hostler, and uh, he's going to chat about three pivotal studies from the last five years in the swine industry. So thanks for joining here today, Chris, and uh, welcome to the show. Absolutely, Marcio. It's uh, my privilege and honor to be here. I'm excited for our time together today. Awesome. Thank you. And first thing is uh, if you can share with us, for those that don't know you, about your career and also how you got uh, started in the pig industry. Sure. I got started in the pig industry as a uh, 12-year-old kid who farrowed out 20 sows for a neighbor and uh, took care of all their piglets and and, uh, managed them all the way through until they were uh, ready to be weaned. I think he paid me something like $3 a piglet and we probably averaged (laughs) about seven pigs weaned per sow. And uh, that was a lot of candy for me back when I was 12 years old. That's awesome. So that was my first job in the industry, but I was a farm kid raised on a, a hog and corn and soybean farm in Indiana and um, have always enjoyed uh, understanding the uh, physiology of animals and, and always curious and always driven by the, um, why, the question why around why things work uh, from a biology standpoint. Um, to... Purdue University for my undergraduate degrees, just like every other farm kid in Indiana, um, mm. Purdue land grant there as an animal science major and, um, and stuck with it, became interested in research in as a junior in college 
and did a research project with Mark Diekman looking at uh, the use of melatonin in gilts and their age at puberty. And uh, that was really my opportunity to get exposure to research. And um, I went to uh, University of Florida for a master's degree. I was really intrigued around the uh, maternal recognition of pregnancy, which is the early, uh, the early phases of pregnancy and, and the fact that we lose about 30% of our embryos mm. within the first 30 days of pregnancy. Just an amazing, uh, you know, opportunity for um, improvement there, I think. And right. uh, so I went down there for my master's degree and then went to Washington State University for my PhD. And while I was there, I managed their research and teaching swine farm. So I was responsible for allocating the animals to the research trials, making sure we had enough animals for, for uh, research trials, but then also coordinating all of the, the teaching efforts that went on at the, at the farm, as well as managing the labor. So it gave me a true sense of appreciation for the production aspects of it. I stayed and did a, um, a postdoctoral study in the School of Molecular Biosciences Oh, wow. uh, enjoyed my time there. I worked on uh, the genetic regulation of spermatogenesis in rats and mice with a model uh, as model uh, organisms for studying human reproduction, um, but really missed the agriculture aspects of it. And that's probably the most important thing that my my postdoc taught me was was that I really missed being involved with the agricultural uh, aspect. So. I took a faculty position at South Dakota State University teaching, uh, teaching monogastric nutrition for graduate students as well as the general nutrition class for undergraduates. Enjoyed my time in the classroom, enjoyed working with uh, bright, intelligent minds and uh, kind of that next generation of producer. But when the job came open here at uh, the National Pork Board about nine years ago, um, that really allowed me to work directly with the producers. Um, I applied for it and was successful in, in getting that. And it's been an interesting, uh, it's been a very interesting and rewarding uh, career change for me. That's super nice. Yeah, it's cool that sometimes we do the graduate program trying to fix these issues, right? They mentioned the, the, the embryonic losses. My, for me, my reason was the right after winning, you know, the pigs don't eat. But the, the funny part is that I haven't fixed it. I don't think you have fixed it, but at least you try, right? Yeah. You know, I was, for one of the things that my master's taught me was um, we looked at embryonic mortality from a um, biochemical signaling between the fetus and the mother, right? Mm -hmm. How does the fetus signal its presence so that the mother doesn't come back into heat, right? Um, and, and really I got to thinking, well, maybe we don't, maybe we think we know how to feed sows in gestation, but I'll bet we don't know what the nutritional requirements of a developing fetus is. Right. Mm -hmm. And so how could we begin to attack that problem? And so that's how I came to be a swine nutritionist. When I was hired as a faculty member at South Dakota state, I had never actually even ran a metabolism study. And, uh, and so to be a nutritionist coming at it from a different angle, I think was really uh, rewarding for me. But really what that says is I'm interested in, in animal science in general, right? I'm interested mm -hmm. in lots of different things, um, interested in genetics and interested in reproduction and nutrition and management practices. And really for me, I think of myself as a true animal scientist, right? generalist rather than more specific as a as a nutritionist or a geneticist or a, 
or reproductive biologists. So anyways, it, it really fits my, it fits my uh, wheelhouse to work for the National Pork Board. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, that's super cool. Cool. Well, getting into the topic of today, Chris, um, what are the three pivotal studies then, in your opinion, from the last five years? Yeah, well, you know, certainly the National Pork Board has, has, uh, has invested a lot of producer money in um, things such as promotion, things such as training and certification program. And the a third aspect of that is the research aspect. And um, we have funded lots of research projects to address problems that producers are having on their farm each and every day. The, the uh, legacy goes back, you know, to the uh, mid to late 90s. When, um, when uh, Rodney Goodwin and David Meeker were doing research around, uh, you know, genetic improvement of pigs and uh, for meat quality and, um, and longevity and that sort of thing. So the maternal line study and the terminal sire index from the late 90s, you know, those are some of our more historical uh, research projects that we did uh, back in the day. We've really changed our philosophy a lot since then, but... If we fast forward, but, but I, I would say that the one unifying characteristic has been that it is producer driven. Mm. Right? So we have producers that have served faithfully on the animal science committee or on uh, task forces and work groups that really um, shape the direction and focus for the research programs that we have at the National Pork Board. Um, and they are the ones that, that choose what priorities to work on so that they can answer problems that they're facing each and every day. And they're the ones that select the, the protocols, the research projects that, that, that ultimately they end up funding at the, at the end of the day. I'm just the guy that works on the other side to kind of help all of that uh, happen. And, um, and so, you know, that, that is sort of the common thread through it all. But if we fast forward to say 2010, I know that's not within your last five mm, years. That's fine. It's, but there's an amazing story to be told around the sequencing of the pig genome. And so in 2010, the Animal Science Committee members were, uh, were meeting. And during that meeting, they had a discussion about the, the beef cattle genome uh, pro project that the USDA had just undertaken to support the sequencing of the beef cattle genome. And, um, and the guys at the Animal Science Committee said, why in the world aren't we doing that in the pigs? We should be doing that in pigs. And so they put up $600,000 of their money. Mm -hmm. They partnered with Iowa and Minnesota Pork, and they had another $300,000 that those two organizations shared. And so for $900,000, we began that project. The USDA then picked up that project because our producers were willing to invest mm -hmm. in they picked that up and put an additional $10 million into wow. the product. Wow. And then the international pig genome sequencing uh, picked it up and they ultimately put in about $40 million worth of that. And in 2012, we uh, published the first genetic sequence for pig. Um, and so uh, for a, a $600,000 at the national level and a $900,000 investment, the producers were able to leverage that not only in in the ultimate uh, ultimately in the sequence of the pig genome but also through other monetary support right we turned that into a 50 million dollar project with a with a nine hundred thousand dollar initial investment and that re I, I don't care how you do that math that return on that investment is huge <laughs> yeah right? it's huge yeah 
So, so is that in that case, were the all that money used for that project, or could using others, or and also why does it cost that much? Yeah. So back in the day, it cost that much, and, wow. and back in the day, it took years to sequence a genome. Right. And now, because of technology, has improved so much in the ten years that or twelve right. years that has. Uh, uh, the intervening 10 or 12 years, you know, the re the cost is much uh, less to sequence the pig genome. But now we have the basis for it. And now we can simply go through and begin to uh, improve the annotation of the pig genome itself so that we have a better understanding of what particular genes do and the role that they play in, in biology. But it serves as a great... Um, tool for researchers when they are trying to improve things like uh, disease resistance, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, they can, they can identify those genes that convey the resistance to certain gene, uh, diseases, and then they can uh, make changes in those genes to convey that resistance. And so, you know, it's just one example of the way that, that uh, the pig genome is, is being used today. Um, to help uh, pork producers. Wow. Yeah, that's huge. It's huge to think. I did, yeah, I didn't know it started right there. Yeah, that's super cool. Anything else on the sequencing uh, before we move to the next one? Yeah, you know, I think I think we, we use it a lot for, um, we talk about disease resistance, but we can also use pigs are a very important biological model for human beings. And I think most recently, our producers may have heard about um, using CRISPR-Cas9 as a gene editing tool. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think um, using that, um, while that might convey some production uh, advantages, right? We might have a pig that, that for example, uh, secretes phytase, right? So we get better uh, right. phosphorus utilization in swine diets. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I think from a human medical standpoint, that's huge as well because... Um, because we can create models to study problems that we're having on the human side and, and use pigs to do that for a better of the, of all human beings. So super cool. Yeah, this is super all started in the animal science committee, right? Just sitting around saying we should be doing that. Right. Yes. And so this is amazing. Yes. Yes. Because you have to understand, right. The, the basis, if you will, to really be able to do anything on top of it. Right. Yeah, super cool. Um, what's the next one? Yeah, so then beginning in about 2012, uh, we started a project looking at sal, improving sow lifetime productivity and really, um, you know, some icons in the swine industry, Steve Pullman and Dean Boyd were instrumental in sort of initiating those uh, projects. Um, we had a working group that, that studied um, uh, a research model, and they came up with a, a consortium approach to conducting that research. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really our first effort to um, kind of harness the power of multiple investigators working on a common problem together. And, um, and so that project got started really in 2012, um, continued through 2018, um, there were two major projects during that time. One was, was managed by um, the folks at Clay Center, Nebraska, and the other was managed by uh, George Foxcroft at University of Alberta. 
the Clay Sender project uh, was uh, conducted on Murphy Brown's research farm in Utah, and the University of Alberta's uh, project was conducted at Holden Farms in Minnesota. And both of those organizations are just great partners to have on the research side. Really uh, a lot of you know, intelligence and acumen and dedication around doing research and doing research projects right. And that makes a huge difference when you're trying to collect uh, data from the time a female is born until she's third parity, right? And just tracking all of the possible uh, information from um, the time she's, she was uh, born all the way through um, in terms of vaccinations and boar exposure and heat no service and then entering the sow herd and, um, and nutritional programs around that. And, and so... I think that that body of information really, um, you know, we began to um, have that research, those research results come out in um, various formats uh, beginning in about 2013 and 14. And really, um, we've showed that information, that data around for uh, the last uh, five or six years. And um, it, today it continues to produce papers. In fact, I just had a conversation with George Foxcroft last week that the kind of the final, one of the final papers is, is uh, in for, public, uh, uh, for consideration for publication. So from a scientific standpoint, it was a great investment for, for the pork producers because they uh, created a database that can be mined for years to come um, uh, around guilt management and that sort of thing. Um, so just a really good project. A lot of good information came out of there. We, we produced a, an entire National Hog Farmer Blueprint series based on that. And so, um, you know, that information was presented at Layman Conference and at uh, Pork Academy at World Pork Expo, et cetera, et cetera. So lots of different places that producers can find that information around guilt management and sow longevity. Very cool. Anything that comes to mind as the, a few highlight on takeaways for you, but also that you've seen the change so far in the industry? Yeah, so one of the things that, that uh, George Foxcroft's project showed was uh, demonstrated was that um, there is a phenotype for an average piglet birth weight in a litter. And so sows that have a, a low average piglet birth weight will always have a low average piglet birth weight, regardless of the number of pigs that they have in the litter, uh -huh. okay? And they will never go above average, okay? Uh -huh. So you could keep them in for three or four parodies, and if they had one as a gilt, they will always have, they will always have lightweight pigs when they farrow. And likewise, there's about 20% of the sows that have uh, an average heavy weight pig, right? Mm -hmm. So their pigs are heavier than average and they never go below average, right? And so that was really, I think, a fundamental understanding of that particular issue. And producers have those sows buried in their herds and they have never identified them because few producers actually weigh piglets at birth. Mm -hmm. So they keep them in as gilts. But I would, I would bet that those light birth weight pigs represent probably 40% of the barn, uh, the pigs that are left in the barn on the third pole, you know? And so that's a drag on our system that we've been able to identify. I know that there are a few producers out there 
um, and genetics companies that are beginning right. to look at that, right? Because yeah. one of the things that they said was, you know, we've got this population of, of uh, replacement gilts. They come in as sows in the herd at the genetic nucleus stage. They never send a, another female downstream to the multiplication phase. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have them in our genetic nucleus herd, but they never contribute to the overall genetic improvement of the, of the system. So it's just a, to me, that was one of the big gee whiz. That's a pretty profound uh, finding for that particular uh, research effort. Yeah, that's super cool. I mean, yeah, I've seen some genetic companies now, like you said, uh, selecting for birth weight, which is, which is everyone, I think, says, you know, thanks God, because for the last 20 or 30 years, we know two things, right? We made, as nutritionists, we made sales fatter, be, trying to fix the birth weight, and we haven't yeah. fixed. And now, you know, I, I have uh, good conversations with Jeanette's friends, uh, jokingly, you know, thanks, yeah. I'm glad you guys admitted who was in charge of that. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, exactly. So, cool. And then, what's, anything else on that one, or you want to move to the third one? Yeah, let's go to the, the next one. So, what would be the third great study there chris yeah so that was the cell lifetime productivity effort was really sort of our first foray into um, a consortium type of research project but at that same time and i think you may have been trained under this grant uh, um, the uh, feed efficiency grant that was Mm -hmm. held between iowa state and kansas state where there was a research component a training and and uh, outreach component uh, associated with them as well. And the Animal Science Committee really looked at that as a model and they said, we can do better in terms of how we conduct research. And really, you know, um, the, the idea around uh, pig survivability is uh, improving pig survivability is a big issue. And I know that, you know, producers are uh, concerned about finding a hole in their production, creating a hole in their production right now through selective euthanasia and Mm -hmm. so that they can meet the slowdown due to the packing plant. So I totally understand. We're not talking about uh, pig survivability today like we were uh, two or three years ago, right? But the bottom line is, you know, 35% of of the pigs were not reaching uh, market weight. And and regardless of how you look at that, that's, um, that's a poor business model. Uh, for us. And so yeah. our industry really needs to take a very sharp look at that. And so um, our pork producers on the Animal Science Committee identified that as one of the areas that's a big research project, right, to un- to get your arms around uh, improving ways of improving pig survivability. And so we put a request for proposals out there for a consortium approach. It's a multifactorial problem, meaning there's lots of reasons why pigs die. Um, or are called from the the herd. Um, So let's look at all of those. Um, And so um, we we selected a consortium led by Jason Ross at Iowa State University, but I think there's 17 consortium members from uh, three different uh, institutions, Purdue. I know Kara Stewart was on your um, Mm. podcast just last week, maybe. Mm -hmm. And um, she's, she's one of our investigators on that. And then uh, Mike Tokash and the, and the swine group at um, Kansas State are on that, as well as the folks from Iowa State uh, Animal Science, as well as vet school. And just a great uh, way of uh, really focusing our producer dollars in a very 
important way um, to really sort of make progress against it. So um, in this pr particular instance, um, the Animal Science Committee, I believe they put up about uh, $700,000 uh, for uh, supporting that. And then the Welfare Committee, the Animal Welfare Committee, uh, put up another $300,000 to support it. So we had a million dollars. And we took that million dollars to the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research. And they said, yes, this sounds like a, a way of improving efficiency of production. Mm -hmm. And so we want to support that. So the so uh, Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research matched that money. So we leveraged our producer dollars two to one right there. So we put in a million dollars, they put in a million dollars. And so for $2 million, we've got a, a group of researchers that over the next five years will not only conduct research, but they have a very uh, robust training program for their graduate students that will then come out of this program and go on to be decision makers and leaders and uh, program directors for uh, the different pork producing uh, companies, or they will go into academia and train the next generation of, of uh, graduate students and undergraduate students. Um, so, you know, we think that that training program probably has value for pork producers for the next 30 or 40 years as those graduate students right now transition to the industry and really make a, a difference for um, understanding how uh, pigs can be managed differently to ensure that a larger percentage of them make it to market. And then finally, there's an outreach component, right? And um, one of the outreach components was uh, the um, Pig Survivability, the International uh, Conference on Pig Survivability uh, that's being organized in Omaha, Nebraska in October of uh, 2020. Um, and so that's just one of the examples of, of uh, of the outreach effort. I think you had Jordan Gephardt on as well. Yeah, I was going to say, absolutely. About why pigs die, right? At different phases yeah. of production. And he's a great example of the outreach, you know, that kind of, that kind of, um, uh, of thing is, is important. And I know that, um, that Amanda Chipman has made a series of small, uh, short videos explaining the research results from the sow prolapse study that they did. And so those are all outreach tools that we think our, our next generation of pork producers are really um, going to be using as they try to uh, improve the, continually improve the way pigs are, are produced and raised. So this is a great project, I think, beginning to end from the planning phases, how the Animal Science Committee really came around that idea of, of improving pig survivability all the way through and, until, you know, we, we put the, the uh, consortium in place. We did a funding consortium with uh, partnering with FR. We did a research consortium. Uh, but also a training and, and outreach component as well. So it's just, I think it's just a great project. Uh, I'm, I'm confident that it's going to really change the way uh, pigs are managed uh, in the future. Yeah, no, this is amazing. I mean, the, the feed efficiency conference, that was great. You know, yeah. you had the, you had the, the beginning one, hey, what do we know? And then you had the end, what, do we, what did we learn? Yeah. Super cool on the, on the pig survivability too. I mean, survival is the number one th i know you mentioned right now is a tough time but this is temporary i think most of us would agree 
right? Long term, it's huge for the industry yeah. survivability. Yeah. One of the things that I really appreciate about the swine industry is the vision of the, the pork producers, right? They're just some really, truly visionary folks. Everett Forkner is a great example of that. And I bring his name up because I think a lot of producers will know Everett as a, one of the past presidents of the pork board, but just a true visionary in terms of thinking about the the way the industry will be in, in the next uh, few years. And so having that sort of um, big picture vision for the industry and taking off the blinders of what's happening for me today, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking what, am, what's my business going to look like, uh, you know, five years from now and 10 years from now, I think the industry, one of the things I appreciate about the industry is just, just some really great thinkers in that space. And I think those, those folks are the ones that really have an appreciation for this type of research where we're trying to tackle difficult uh, topics um, that no other funding organization is, is attempting to, to approach, you know? Yes. And it's funny because I'm a big fan of uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX and those things. Uh, I even have his book up here. And uh, I want to do this analogy, which is I remember he's saying that, you know, they would, they don't have any plans. They never had any plans to, to make SpaceX a public company because mm -hmm. when you do that, you are mostly focusing on short-term stuff, you know, quarterly results, whatever. You don't focus on the long-term goal, you know, 10, mm -hmm. 20, 30 years down the road. Yeah. And the reason I bring that up is because, like you said, I think a lot of times, even from the, maybe from the supplier side or even from the producer itself, Mm -hmm. opinion if there's not a common body looking at the extreme long-term sustainability stuff not many people are going to be looking because we want to fix right now the fire and all those things so you know just a comment there yeah we certainly have to fix the fire right and we yeah. we uh, certainly one one of the things that, that we've really changed as an organization and this COVID-19 has really brought out to us is about a year ago we changed the way that we do our strategic plan and our, our, the way we do business and the way we uh, fund and support research at the National Pork Board. And that really has allowed us to be more agile and flexible mm. in terms of what projects we were able to uh, refocus and rededicate money within our organization to really um, help to address uh, some of those things that producers needed uh, in their time of crisis around COVID-19. And so, you know, I think, I think those things are extremely important to be right. able to address those. Um, so we don't definitely don't want to lose sight of that, but you're absolutely right. That long-term planning, that vision, uh, I think is key to making sustained changes for our industry. Super cool. No, that makes total sense. Very cool. Well, the other question I guess I had, um, Chris, is, other some other countries uh, and I mean, from Brazil where I'm from uh, we don't have a similar or analog type of uh, format just from uh -huh. the research standpoint uh, I just want to get your thoughts and also if you can share I mean there's over 25 countries that, that listen to the podcast majority is US Canada Brazil but but just want to you know if you can have a word of a device or what's been your experience you know, the impact to the industry from having a pork checkoff and, and those things. 
Yeah, so I think back in, in I certainly am not a, a true historian of our organization, but it started with Nichols for Profit, you know, back uh, way back in the day. And there were a lot of uh, pork producers that were passionate about um, in, increasing the demand for their product, right? And that's really why the National Pork Board was, uh, was established, it was mm-hmm. to increase that demand from our consumers, both domestic and international. And international is absolutely amazing, right? 26% of our pigs that we produce in the United States go elsewhere uh, globally. So we are a critical um, we are a critical country for providing protein globally, right? It goes right. all over the world. Um, and you know, over time, it's evolved to be more of a uh, to also include training and outreach uh, component or training and uh, certification component for our producers, right? Pork quality assurance, pork quality, PQA plus, uh, trucker quality assurance, all of those things are, are uh, certification programs that we have here that we've established. But then also to have a research arm, right? Where we can really uh, fund, fund research and approximately 10% of our uh, of our uh, producer dollars are invested in research uh, um, programs here at the pork board. And really, I, I would credit Steve Pullman with changing the philosophy or way around the way that that money is thought of, um, because he was a big proponent of a return on investment. Mm-hmm. And he says, surely you don't get a hundred percent hit rate, right? Um, but you would you would hope that you know some somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty or forty percent of the projects that you fund are really really good projects that give the producers really good information, right? Right. Uh, and then the other the others those are sort of the home run type of things that we've talked about today. But there's a lot of of hits that happen that just get producers on first base, right? Mm-hmm. And, and those are critically important in uh, in establishing the program. So. He had this idea of investing producer dollars rather than spending producer dollars on research. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's a, a philosophical shift that I really appreciate that Dr. Pullman uh, had, uh, was instrumental in making in the, in the way we viewed the way we fund research with producer dollars. Um, we certainly are not the only organization globally. I know Aust- Australia has the pork CRC, the Roger Johnson uh, research uh, that, that they manage. Um, you know, that's a, that is a wonderful uh, program where there is a partnership, a true partnership between uh, the producers and the pork CRC, the federal government, uh, to make this pork CRC. There's sharing of, of funding support and, and uh, decision-making around projects and that sort of thing. Um, that's a, a great business model for doing kind of what we do here at the Pork Board. Right. Uh, our neighbors to the north, Canada, you know, they, they have a, a robust uh, support program for their pork producers as well. Um, and then I would say one of the things that we really – uh, that I'm appreciative of is working with our sister organizations, and that would be the National Pork Producers Council, as well as our state pork organizations, mm-hmm. uh, state or regional uh, pork organizations. Um, we have, I think, 43 state and regional pork organizations that we work with. And, um, and it's really nice for us because um, back in, uh, I believe it was 2005, the Pork Producers Council and National Pork Board were split as two organizations. Um, and they, uh, you know, council really takes care of all of our 
um, policy type of issues, and we're much more focused on the um, on the production, demand enhancement, international trade, those sorts of things. Um, but we don't we don't uh, have to worry about the policy uh, type of issues and working with governmental organizations and that sort of thing is absolutely so more power to the Pork Producers Council for that. Absolutely. No, that's great. Thanks for your thoughts there. Anything else before we move to the three questions we ask every guest, every episode? Oh, you know, the only other thing I would bring to, as we're talking about training and outreach, the only other thing that I would bring up for, for our producers' knowledge is that this past year, um, in about November, we launched an effort to understand the workforce needs around technically trained personnel. So those would be folks uh, like yourself with an advanced degree in nutrition, right? How is our industry going to use geneticists and, and nutritionists and reproductive biologists and, and um, folks that are really are their decision makers? So we, we uh, hired a firm called Look East, ran by Charlie Arnott, and that group has done uh, two of the three phases. The first phase was to do a survey of our pork producers and really find out how they employ those, those uh, staff members that have uh, advanced degrees, masters or PhDs. Where, what do they do? How are they employed? What are their needs in terms of, are you thinking about hiring somebody that's a, a nutritionist or a DVM in the next two to three years, right? Um, the second phase then was really getting our arms around what are the needs in academia to train that next generation of, of uh, you know, pork producers um, for our industry? Mm-hmm. And then the third phase will be to look at the allied industry. So our genetics companies, our feed companies, our equipment manufacturing companies, our data capture companies, our research companies, right? Because now there are, are, are research barns that you can hire and conduct right. research in. So what is, what is our allied industry look like um, in terms of their needs for people with advanced degrees to really get an understanding of whether or not the current graduate programs are meeting the need? And then number two, as we look 10 or 15 years down the road, what does that advanced degree look like? I think it might look like something like a, a swine nutrition degree with, a, with an MBA, Right. So having that business acumen to understand the business decision, uh, but also to be able to understand the impact of changes in the in the nutritional program of a production company. Right. So that's just one for example of Mm -hmm. of what that might look like. So that's that's one of the projects that I would like our producers to kind of keep on the horizon is one of those projects that's really going to begin to pay dividends for us, I think. So super cool. Yeah, that's super interesting to understand, you know, how to um, educate the, the new generation. So super cool. And, and definitely, I mean, of course, I'm biased. But one thing that for me is clear is the way to communicate, especially using the Internet. I mean, we're in 2020 and yeah. this is huge, right? Yeah. Uh, I think we can use a lot more of that to um, just communicate. Yeah, I think that's changed that that whole philosophy for an old dog like me, Marcio. That's really changed uh, because of COVID nineteen, right? And right. the opportunity. I've been working from home for three months now, and um, just that opportunity to uh, interact with not just pork producers, but uh, you know my um, 
my fellow staff members and, and uh, bosses and that, that sort of thing through, um, you know, video conferencing and daily uh, conference calls and that sort of thing. It just, it, it changes that whole philosophy about the face-to-face -face type of interaction and, and the use of technology for conveying information, right? That's really what it's all about. Yep. Perfect. It is time to our famous three. The truth is precision swine production is not the future, it is the present. Every Pig is the intelligent pig health platform. It is a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Request a free 20-minute demonstration at www.everypig.co slash swineit. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. So, uh, Chris, what's your favorite pig-related book or resource? Sure. I, I still go back to the old uh, pork industry handbook. Um, I've got uh, one that sits on my shelf and, and um, you know, I refer to that on, on a regular basis. I used it as one of my textbooks when I was teaching uh, swine production back at Washington State and then again at, at South Dakota State. And it's still just a great wealth of information, though some of it's beginning to fall, uh, become a little dated. Mm -hmm. um, it's still just a, a wealth of information for pork producers. So. That's, that's a great one. That's cool. Uh, how about your favorite book in general, not related to pigs? Well, I'm an avid reader and um, it's hard to narrow down my favorite book. Um, but 1491 by George C. Mann um, is a story about the Americas pre prior to Christopher Columbus coming. And it, I think it's just a really well done, well researched uh, uh, book. It's pretty thick, but it's a great summertime read. That's cool. Awesome. Yeah. I, I never be much of reading history, but, uh, recently I've been more inclined to do so. That's yeah. Cool. It's because you're getting older, Marcio. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right. Um, cool. So lastly, uh, what do you think sets apart successful swine professionals from those who are not? Yeah, I think the ability to, to employ critical thinking and reasoning, as well as willingness to adopt or try at least new technologies. Uh, the swine industry has always had uh, folks that are, that, um, you know, are considered early adopters, especially when you look around the, the barnyard, as I like to say, right? Um, you look at some of the other uh, livestock industries and the pork industry has always been on the front edge of, of technology. And I'll just, uh, you know, go back to the understanding that, the impact that having the swine genome would have from our pork producers, you know? So that really sets, in my opinion, that really sets apart the successful pork producers. Super cool. Very good. Well, thanks so much, Chris, for um, your time. Uh, great, great research being done there in collaboration with many uh, producers and universities. So appreciate you sharing uh, some of that. Absolutely, Marcio. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, pleasure to be your guest today. Uh, hopefully, uh, people find it of value. And I would say that, you know, the last thing I always like to close off my uh, podcast or webinars with is just encourage people to go visit uh, pork.org. We just have a, a great, um, you know, resource for COVID-19 related information, but also um, our research webpage. Um, 
you know, our, our, the things that we're doing from a promotion standpoint, I think it's just a, a great place for producers to get a lot of information. Absolutely. We'll make sure to, to drop the link for the folks as well on the Thank notes so here. And I uh, appreciate uh, Chris. Hey, everyone. Please share our episodes with as many people as you can so we can continue to impact the life of swine professionals from around the globe with the wisdom of our great guests. Before you go, make sure to get in our waitlist for the Swine Talks web conference, the first online conference of the global swine industry, an update on hot topics, and we're even going to have some controversial topics of the global swine industry, so you can leverage that knowledge in your day today. Go to swinetalks.com and get on our waitlist. We'll talk soon.